All right, so Galatians chapter 1. You might want to mark your Bibles there semi-permanently for the next little bit. We're going to be, until between now and Thanksgiving, walking through uh, this powerful book, one of Paul's shorter letters and yet one of his most powerful in terms of helping us to understand what is this thing called the gospel? That's a real churchy word that we use. What is it? And why do we treasure it so intently? The Lord Jesus himself told a parable, which is a story that communicates a spiritual truth. He told a parable of a man who was walking through a field one day, and he came across a treasure. And that treasure was worth so much to him that the man went and he sold everything that he had in order to purchase that field that he might have the treasure that he had found there. I want you to think for a moment this morning, what's worth everything to you? What would you sell out everything for? What's the most costly thing in your life? Jesus was communicating to us that there is something worth selling out for. That there is something that's worth it all. And I believe it's this thing that we're going to talk about today called the gospel. And the gospel is wrapped up in this sweet little five-letter word called grace. I want to talk to you today about the gospel of grace in Galatians chapter 1. And why this is the treasure worth selling out for. This is a treasure worth guarding with our lives. This is a treasure worth celebrating with our words. This is everything. And I want you to see why that is this morning. So this is the letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in the, in the region of the world known as Galatia. Uh, if you think about the modern day world today, we're thinking about the country of Turkey is where these uh, particular churches were located, that particular region uh, of the world there in the Middle East. And it's a place that Paul was very familiar with. He had gone there on his very first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 and 14. He had gone there and, and started various churches. He had come preaching and proclaiming this gospel, this treasure that we're going to talk about today. And people had come to know the Lord through, through faith in Jesus Christ. They had, they had been saved and they had started churches. And the gospel was flourishing and then something happened and we'll talk about what that something is here in just a moment but look there at the first couple of verses Galatians 1 1 and 2 we get a little bit of an introduction here but the introduction speaks of a direct appointment that God made in the life of the apostle Paul and as we, we're going to flesh this out more next week. Matt's going to bring the message next week, and I'm try, going to try to step on your message, brother. I'm just going to kind of move past this thought. But, but there was a direct appointment of God in the life of the Apostle Paul to this thing called being an apostle. That's why he says there this letter is from Paul the Apostle. 
Now, if we had time this morning, I would take you over to Acts chapter 9 and introduce you to Paul the Apostle, this one who in Acts chapter 9 is referred to as Saul. And in Acts chapter 9, this guy named Saul, who was a Pharisee, who was a keeper and teacher of the religious law of that day, of, of a, a high prominent me- member of these ones known as the Jews, that the this one known as Saul, he was on his way to a city called Damascus, and he had papers in hand that authorized him to persecute, to imprison, and to even kill followers of this strange little new sect called the Way. They were known as the Way because their master and Lord, Jesus Christ, had said, I am the Way, the truth, and the life. That's John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they had taken that up as a badge of honor. We are followers of the Way. Later, they would be called Christians at a little place called Antioch. But for now, Paul, this one now was known as Saul, is gone to persecute, to imprison, even to kill these followers of the way because he saw them as a threat to true religion. But along the way to Damascus, if you know the story, is along the way to Damascus, there was a blinding light from heaven and a voice spoke to Paul, then known as Saul, and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asked a great question. Who are you, Lord? Who's speaking? Who's the voice? And he said, I am the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm the one that you're persecuting. And in that moment, the persecutor became a preacher. In that moment, his life was so radically transformed that he was turned upside down, inside out, in every way that could he could be turned. And he was brought into the fold as one of these followers of the way. And the one who was a persecutor became a preacher and a proclaimer of the gospel. He was called as an apostle, and that's not a word that we use a lot in modern language today, but it literally means one who is sent out with a commission. You can think in modern day of an ambassador. An ambassador from the United States to France might be one who goes on. He's the representative of his home nation. And the apostles were those who were sent out on a special commission from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, Paul says of himself, I'm one who was kind of abnormally born, The rest of the apostles walked and talked with Jesus as he walked the earth those three years during his earthly ministry. They were witnesses of his resurrection directly. The apostle Paul heard the voice from heaven and witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ and was taught through him as we'll see next week in the rest of Galatians chapter 1. But the apostle, one who was sent out with a commission. This was a man on a mission who was sent out to wreck the world with this crazy thing called the gospel. To speak to people about this weird notion called grace. That the favor of God will not be earned by our works. It is unmerited favor. It's a free gift. It's scandalous and beautiful. So Paul the Apostle writes here to the churches in Galatia, this region there, and what's now known as Turkey, a number of churches that he had been a part of planting in that first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14. You can read about churches like Lystra and Derby. You can read about the church at, at Pisidian Antioch. You can see him going there and planting those churches, preaching the gospel, seeing the gospel flourish. But something happened. 
between Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 15. There's a gap of time between Acts chapter 14 and the concluding parts of that first missionary journey and Acts chapter 15 when the church as a whole is faced with a dilemma. So Paul has gone out and proclaimed the gospel to all these folks known as Gentiles. Now, by the way, you would be numbered among them unless you're of Jewish heritage today. You would be numbered among the Gentiles. And up to this point, the the gospel had primarily stayed among the Jewish people. But now this crazy former Pharisee known as Paul is out preaching to the Gentiles. And the church is faced with this issue. What do we do with all these Gentiles? Because they're not Jews. We don't know what to do with them. There was a cultural divide that was so deep. There is, there is nothing in our culture that quite equates to the divide between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, even with all the divide between racial classes and, and social classes in our culture, there's nothing that quite equates to the divide in the first century between Jews and and Gentiles, and now the Jews in the, they had become followers of the way, had become to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they were faced with this dilemma. What do we do with these crazy Gentiles? They don't follow our customs. They don't observe the Sabbath. They don't wear tassels on their coat, which, well, yeah, that was a thing. Well, they don't do any of the stuff that we do, and so can we really just accept them as they are? Isn't that going to really mess things up? Because they don't observe anything that we observe. Isn't this just going to cause problems? And so along came these guys known as the Judaizers. And what the Judaizers did is they came along behind Paul. They came into these churches that Paul had started. And they said, you know, we know that Paul came to you and he was teaching you about this grace thing, right? And the the churches went, yeah, Paul was all about grace, the free gift of God, of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And they said, yeah, but there's more to the story. We got to give you the rest of the story because Paul just got you started with this whole Jesus thing. And, and Jesus is good. Jesus, Judaizer says, Jesus is good. And this grace thing, it's good too, but it's not enough. You got to have the rest of the story. You got to have a Jesus plus gospel. And their plus was this thing called Judaism observance of the Old Testament law, keeping the Sabbath, things like circumcision. And so Paul writes the letter to the Galatians to bring them back to the gospel of grace. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This was Paul's life mission, and it should be ours as well. This great gospel that Jesus Christ came to save lost sinners through his sacrifice at the cross. And salvation comes by grace, the free gift of God, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not a Jesus plus gospel. It's a Jesus alone gospel. So Paul's direct appointment. Secondly, we see that Paul speaks of a divine advocate. 
And here in these verses, he gives us the gospel in a nutshell. What is this treasure that's worth giving our lives for? What is this treasure that's worth guarding and treasuring with all that we are? What is this treasure that radically saves lost sinners like us? And he describes it here in these verses, particularly there in verse 4. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. That's it, church. He gave himself for our sins. For what purpose? To deliver us, to rescue us. To rescue us and deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Two things are said here that I want you to see. First of all, this thing called grace, it was the will of God the Father. This was not plan B. God was not standing back on the day when Adam and Eve sinned against Him and stole that fruit in the garden. And He wasn't standing back and going, Oh man, what do I do now? Now i got to go to plan B because Adam and Eve really screwed this thing up. No. It was always plan A. Grace was always plan A for God. It was always going to be by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't as if the New Testament days came and now there was a new way of salvation. No, we're going to see in this book of Galatians, it's always been God's plan that salvation would be by grace, the free gift of God. It's always been His plan. And yet we so quickly walk away from that. Tim Keller said the biblical gospel is clear. That salvation from first to last, from beginning to end, it's all God's doing. When you read the New Testament, it's His calling. It's His plan. It's His action. It's His work from beginning to end. And for that reason, He deserves all the glory. Here's the truth for sinners like me. If I had a 1% share in my salvation, if God did 99% and I did 1%, guess what I'd boast about? This right here. If I had a point zero 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 one percent share in my salvation, that's what I would boast about because that's what sinners do. We boast in ourselves. That's the very nature of sin. That's why there's an I in the middle of the word sin. Because sin is a self-focused mentality. That even if I had 1% in, my, in stock of my salvation, that I would boast about that 1% neglecting the 99%. Now you may not see that in yourself. But if you will allow the Lord God to open your heart that you might see what's truly there. That you might see the depth of depravity in the heart of sinful men and women like us, then you too, I believe, would see. You would boast about the 1% as well. That's why it had to be all of God. That's why it had to be all His work. That's why we couldn't be equal partners. He did it all for us as we sing, and all to Him I owe. It's He who deserves all the glory, verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. And the whole church should say to that, Amen. He's deserving of the glory in our salvation. But He won't get the glory unless it's through grace. That's why grace is so important. And that's why Paul, from the very beginning of this letter, is defending his gospel, defending his, this thing called grace. 
Now, somebody who was reading this letter in Paul's day would have been highly offended by the Apostle Paul because here's how you're supposed to start a letter. In those days, you introduce yourself. Now, we tend to do it at the end of our letters, but in those days, you introduce yourself at the beginning, you gave your name, and then you told who you were writing to, and then you gave a little brief description of what the letter was about, and then you launched into a a series of thanksgivings. Here's what I'm thankful for in you. And you look at the rest of Paul's letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians and Romans and, and Ephesians and Colossians, and that's the pattern. He introduces himself. He tells a little bit about what the letter's going to be about. And then he launches into a prayer of thanksgiving for that church and what he's thankful for about that church. Why does he skip that here? Because there is urgent business at hand. He doesn't have time to pause and give thanks for anything because this church is deserting the very thing that brings salvation. They are walking away from the gospel. And it's it's like a parent who sees their child walking out into the highway and you're not going to go, Hey, Junior, I mean, could you come back over here? Like, it's a little danger. No, you're going to scream out, Get out of the road! You're going to do that. Why? Because you love your child. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in love for the church at Galatia. He's saying, You're walking out into a deadly highway as you walk away from this gospel of grace. You're walking out into something that's not going to bring salvation. It's going to bring destruction. This is deadly and you need a warning. There's no time for thanksgiving. This grace was the will of God the Father, but it was also the work of God the Son. Say, who works in my salvation, Jesus? Jesus paid it all, we sing. All to Him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. So what did I do? You sinned. What else? We'll come back to that. And so he says, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Same idea that he gives in 1 Corinthians 15 as he lays out the gospel there. Now I would remind you, brothers, we all need this reminder, church. We're quick to walk away from this. We're quick to turn away from grace as the Galatians were. This is nothing new, and it will continue until the day when the Lord Jesus comes back to bring us home to glory. There's this constant temptation to walk away from grace. And so he says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel that I preached to you, the gospel which you received, the gospel by which you stand, which you are being saved by, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what is this gospel? For I delivered to you as of first importance, top shelf. This is the, this is the treasure. This is the treasure. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that the that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that Christ was buried that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve this is the gospel that we treasure it's the story of our savior who came to rescue us who stepped out of the glories of heaven and into the gutter of this world that he might rescue lost sinners like you and me This is the gospel that we treasure and that we proclaim.
But then look at verse 6. In the place of what should have been thanksgiving, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Galatia, who he loved so much. I am astonished, he says. Blown away. Taken aback. It has knocked my socks off that you guys have so quickly deserted Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He said, I'm blown away. There was a a deep astonishment in the life of the Apostle Paul. I'm blown away by the fact that you're so quickly deserting grace. You're so quickly turning to a different gospel. And like I told you, he planted these churches in Acts 13 and 14. But by Acts 15, everything had blown up in terms of this thing called grace. In terms of what do we do with these Gentiles in the church. Something happened between Acts 14 and 15. And he says it was so quick. It's as if Paul left town and in came these Judaizers saying it's not Jesus alone. It's a Jesus plus Judaism gospel that saves. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm so astonished that you're so quickly walking away from grace. The reality is, church, the reality is this, that revisions of the gospel are always reversals of the gospel. That's the word he uses in verse 7. Those who come in and distort, they come in and they distort the gospel of Christ. That word could just as easily have been termed reverse. They reverse the gospel. They turn it around. Those who have been turned around by the gospel, then these false teachers came in and they said, no, 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 that grace isn't enough. We sing that, don't we? Your grace is enough for me. But these Judaizers were coming in and saying, no, grace isn't enough. You've also got to add to it Judaism. Now, I know what some would say in this room, well, we're not really wrestling with that anymore. Like, I'm not really concerned if I got tassels on my cloak or how much weight I can lift on the Sabbath. Or what I do if my ox falls in the ditch on the Sabbath day. I'm not really wrapped up in that. I mean, even the issue of circumcision that we're going to come to later is really more of a health issue than anything in our day. We're just not, I don't think any of us in this room are going, you know what, I'm just really agonizing over whether I need to embrace Judaism along with my Christianity. But we are, church, hear me on this, we are faced daily with false gospels just like this. And I want to show you some of them this morning. No, we are not tempted by Jesus plus Judaism gospel. But here are some of the temptations that are laid before us in our age. Five false gospels of our day. First of all, and probably the most prominent that I see, is what I would call Jesus plus personal piety this is the good old boy gospel man we hear it all the time well so and so man he's just a good man so and so she's just a great girl and we elevate the morality of folks as if that is in some way important and saving and we'll even i've even heard believers say things like well you know they don't necessarily trust in Jesus. They're, they're not really a part of the church, but they're a really good person. No, the Bible says none are righteous. Not even one. 
And any righteousness that we think we have, go back to Isaiah 43 in the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus. And Isaiah said, our righteousness, the good works that we try to put forth, the morality that we try to put on display, it's like filthy rags before God. There's nothing good in us. And yet, running through our churches, is this idea that surely grace isn't enough. That yes, you've got to have Jesus, but you've also got to add to your faith in Jesus Christ your own personal piety. We've forgotten what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 2. Just as you came to Christ, so continue to walk in Him. You came to Him by grace through faith, so continue to walk by grace through faith. But what we do is we come with our grace card and we trade it in for something that takes us back to the law. We come by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and we trade that in for church attendance. We come by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and we trade it in for daily Bible reading and prayer. We come by the grace of Jesus Christ and we trade it in for being our culture's version of a good person. Not cheating on our taxes and being nice to people. Church, we need to be reminded that good people don't go to heaven. People who've been graced by God go to heaven. People who've been rescued from their sin go to heaven. And may we push to the side any gospel that says salvation is by anything but grace. But that's not the only one. If we ratchet up Jesus plus personal piety, we find the second false gospel of our day, Jesus plus perfectionism. This is the good old boy syndrome taken to the extreme. This is not only do you have to have Jesus, but you've also got to attain a level of moral perfection. These are those who would be hesitant to confess their sins, even though the Bible, 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. These are those who would say, oh, I can't confess that I'm still a sinner that I still wrestle with these addictions and these doubts. I can't, I can't confess that because that would leave me short. The Bible says we're already short, folks. We've already fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we need grace. And some people say, if you preach free grace, you're just going to give people a license to sin. No, go to Romans 6. The Apostle Paul says, those who've been rescued by grace, why would you continue in sin? You were set free from that. That's like a slave being set free and going back to his old master where he's getting beaten down every day. It makes no sense if you've been set free to go back to the slavery. And yet we do it. So Jesus plus perfectionism. I could spend more time on that one, but we'll move on. There's also a Jesus plus politics gospel in our world today. Just this last week, my wife made the error of getting on Facebook. Might as well be called Devil Book in my estimation. That's all that seems to go on there. But there was one of our family members that was belaboring the point. She was asking, okay, so how many of you went to church this morning and had your pastor address the horrific events in Charlottesville, Virginia? Well, let me just say one thing. First of all, your pastor wasn't even aware of the events in Charlottesville, Virginia last Sunday morning. That wasn't even on my radar yet. But her point was this. She said, we have been unable to find a church in our area. We've lived here for over a year, been unable to find in our church in our area because none of the churches that we attend will address these types of issues. And church, let me show you the danger for just a moment. 
First of all, I could preach to you out of the newspaper every week. I could pull out the newspaper every week and bring up the atrocity of the week and get lots of amens. Preach it, brother. Tell us about how we ought to be responding to this atrocious racism and how we should be responding to this changing definition of marriage. Preach it, brother. Bring that on. We want to hear those things. Itching ears love this in our culture right now. That's why Facebook is so popular. But here's the danger, church. The danger is that we would add our political views to faith in Jesus Christ as a means of salvation. Here's how you hear it. When you hear folks saying things like, well, if you're not super passionate about what happened in Charlottesville, if you're not ready to go out with your picket signs and stand on the front lines in this battle, then you obviously don't love Jesus very much. Let me say this, church. Jesus cares about the race issue in our culture. The gospel speaks to the fact that we are all created in the image of God and equal standing before him. And we ought to be concerned about the atrocious divide in our culture, but be reminded it's not so much about a race issue as it is about a sin issue. It's about a sin issue that we have elevated ourselves above the living God and thought that we knew better than Him, and that's why we have a race issue in this culture. The danger of the Jesus plus politics false gospel is this, that I begin to color the gospel by my politics rather than allowing my politics to be colored by the gospel. You see, the gospel ought to inform us on every issue. The gospel speaks to every issue of our day. And, but if we allow the issues to recolor the gospel... If we say things like, well, if you're not super passionate about abortion, if you're not protesting at the abortion clinics, then you obviously don't love Jesus very much. Here's the problem. We ought to be passionate about life. But we ought to be very careful that we don't allow our politics to become something in addition to the work of Jesus Christ. And so, church, we should care about Charlottesville. We should care deeply. But we should care enough that we show a lost and dying world that the only solution to the ridiculous insanity in our culture right now is Jesus Christ and Him alone. There is no other solution. More laws won't fix it. We've got plenty of laws in the books, folks. I'll just let that one lie for today. We're going to come back to it, though, don't you worry. Fourth false gospel, Jesus plus personal experience. Man, this is huge too. Jesus plus personal experience. Now, in among our Pentecostal and charismatic churches, this may take on the form of, well, yeah, Jesus is all good, but you've got you to speak in tongues. You need to be having these dreams, and these visions, these ecstatic experiences. And there's all kinds of craziness associated with that that they begin to measure the reality of your faith with. But here's, here's what version it takes in our Baptist churches. Like, we don't go there, and we think we're really pious, but here's what we do. Jesus plus baptism. Now, I'm not down in baptism, but listen to me, church. Here's what I hear time and time and time again from folks that I talk to who were brought up, raised in Baptist churches. When I ask them, when I ask them about, hey, tell me about how you came to know Christ as your Savior. Here's the first sentence that comes out of their mouth. Well, I was baptized when? Well, I was baptized when? 
Now, we believe that baptism is an extremely important symbolic act of, of showing the world that I've been rescued by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, by His death and burial and resurrection on my behalf. He did all the work and I did none of it. We love baptism for that purpose, but baptism will not save you. Apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, baptism is is just taking a bath in church, which is still really weird. It's strange. But when you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, when you're trusting Him by grace, then baptism becomes a beautiful symbol of that relationship. It's a symbol of what saves. It will not save you. But we are in an experience-driven culture. And when we begin to measure our faith based upon our experiences, we walk down a dangerous path. And finally, you've heard me talk about this one a lot, but it's so dangerous. Jesus plus prosperity. This is when the gospel gets melded together, mated with the American dream. This is the gospel that says, well, if you've really got Jesus, you ought to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. If you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you're going bankrupt, it's because you don't have enough faith. If your child has gone AWOL, it's because you don't have enough faith. And it's a constant guilting that's laid on so many churches, especially those who are of the TV variety. There is such a guilting that goes on that says, if you're not experiencing health and wealth and prosperity in this life, then your relationship with Jesus probably isn't what it should be. It's Jesus plus prosperity. And yet, Jesus himself said to his followers, in this life, guess what you're going to have? Trouble. If you come follow after me, guess what you're going to get? Persecuted. But take heart, I've overcome the world. What does Romans 5 say about the way that the character of Christ is formed in us? It's not through our prosperity, folks. It's through our persecutions and our sufferings. It's suffering that produces the character of Christ in us. If our Savior was not absolved from suffering, then why do we think we would be as His followers? The reality is, church, we all want the prosperity gospel to be true. We all want to believe, give your life to Jesus, and everything will go right from that point forward. And yet, so many understand the true reality that you give your life to Jesus, and then the struggle begins. There was no struggle before, you know why? Because you were a slave to sin, there was no struggle. There was no struggle before because you were captive to the things of this world. There was no struggle. There was no struggle before because the devil had you. He didn't try to grab you you by the heel. There was no struggle before. And so, so many times people come to faith in Christ, they get baptized, and then the struggle comes and they go, what? I thought Jesus was going to fix all my junk. (laughs) Jesus never promised to fix all your worldly junk. He promised to rescue you from sin and death and hell and to conform you into His image when the only way that that takes place is through suffering. I'm sorry if that's bad news. It's actually the best news. Because how much more, how much more will we be prepared for heaven having suffered in this life? How much more will we appreciate the glories of God as we experience the goriness of our day-to-day existence.
Some of you in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I would urge you, I would urge you to run screaming from a prosperity gospel that offers you something that Jesus never promised. It's a false gospel that only leads to death. Let me address two last things and we'll wrap up for the day. First of all, the question comes, if this grace thing is so good, why would anybody turn away from it? Like, why did Paul have to write this letter to the Galatians? Like, if his gospel was so great, if grace is so good, if this is the truth, why would anybody turn away from the free gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Why would anybody turn away from this if it's so good? And I'm glad you're asking that question because I think verse 7 gives us the answer to that. Why does anyone... Why do we see so many of our young people who are growing up in our churches, going off to secular universities, and then, for all intents and purposes, radically abandoning their faith? And I know the old wives' tale was, well, they'll come back one day when they have kids. It's not happening, church. It's not happening. They're not coming back to our churches. So what happens in the life of someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ and then radically turns away? A good friend of mine shared the story with me of one of the deacons of his, of his church, a man who was steeped in the faith. He was a Sunday school teacher. He had, he had taught the youth for many years. He, he was a man who was known for loving his family and had a, had a wonderful Christian business. And then one day, this guy just went AWOL and ran off to California and moved in in a homosexual relationship with another man, and that church was left devastated. What do we do with the fact that this man who we've been led by for many years has now utterly rejected the faith? How does that happen? Well, first of all, I want to say this. It doesn't happen overnight. It's always a slow faith. That's why we have to treasure and guard this gospel. That's why we have to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves day by day because we'll fall away. We'll, we will be drawn away into all these false gospels that we, and, and many others that we could mention. So what causes turning away? I think it comes from two things we find in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, not that there is another gospel, there's only one, but there are some who trouble you. Notice that word trouble. And want to distort the gospel of Christ. That word distort could mean reverse. Some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So here are two main factors that happen when we see, whether it be college students that run away from the faith that they were brought up in, or or, or whether it be those who are farther on down the road decide to turn away from the faith. And every one of us in this room can probably think of those that fall into that category. What happens? Two things. First of all, trouble in the life. See, once again, we all want the prosperity gospel. And when trouble comes, when that freshman student at the secular university who now has a freedom they've never known before, they also have burdens on them they've never never known before. They've had to study for the first time, and they had to get a job. And they're faced with a professor that's constantly berating the fact that they have any faith in God whatsoever, especially Christian faith. Trouble comes into the life. And they don't know what to do with that trouble. It's like the one that Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower. You remember the one who who sprung up really quickly, but then it withered because there was no root. The worries of this world drove away their faith. There was no deep root there. It's the ones that John talks about. He says, here's how we know they weren't of us. 
If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If their faith had been real, it would have persevered to the end. So we're not talking about here those who were believers and then lost their salvation. I think the Bible is very clear when Jesus said, I will not lose one that the Father has given to me. But how do you know that the Father has given you to Him? You keep walking with Him. You persevere in your faith. When trouble comes, you turn to Him rather than away from Him. So the first thing that happens in those that turn away is trouble comes. Trials emerge. Difficulties abound. And not knowing what to do with that, doubts begin to come. And the devil begins to lay before that person some twisted truths. Well, God doesn't really love you. If God really loved you, if his son had really died for you, would you be going through this? Would your marriage be falling apart? Would your kid be sick? Would you be failing that class? If God really loved you, some of you have walked in these places. And so those two things come together. Trials in the life and twisted truths that come alongside. And those doubts begin to take root. And the gospel of grace is removed and replaced with something far less. And so church, here is what we must do. We must not in any way tolerate revisions of this gospel of grace. We are already labeled intolerant. Let's be intolerant about something that matters. I mean, isn't that the truth? Christians are already labeled the most intolerant people in the culture. Let's just be intolerant about something that actually matters. And what matters is this treasure we've been talking about all morning long. What matters is that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. What matters is that He did all the work that was necessary to rescue our sin-soaked souls from eternity in hell. He did it all. We sing it. Will we live it? We must not tolerate these revisions of the gospel because as we're going to see in this book, these revisions of the gospel are reversals of the gospel that ultimately lead away from the path of life and back to death. These are gospels that cannot save. These are gospels that are not gospel at all. They are not good news. They just impersonate good news. David Platt said we must be on guard against anything that would compromise the core of grace that makes the gospel worth celebrating and sharing. That's the president of our International Mission Board, and I could say it no better than he did. We must guard it. Guard it with our lives. And guard it in such a way that we desire to share it. And to celebrate it week by week. And so church, I'll leave you with this question this morning. What's the treasure? Walking through the field of this life. Have you laid your eyes on something worth selling out for? Have you laid your eyes on something worth giving your life for. 
Have you laid your eyes on something that you said, I've got to have it, and then you realized it's been offered to you freely? See, that grace ought to wreck us. That grace ought to remind us day by day of who we are, who we were apart from Christ, and who we are now in Christ. And it ought to lead us back to the very word we heard spoken earlier. We ought to be the ones saying, Amen, so be it, God. Get all the glory, God. It's all your grace, God. I didn't even have 1%, God. It was all you from beginning to end, and I praise you for it. I'm not upset about that. I'm thankful because there was nothing I could do lost in my sin. There was nothing I could do about the fact that I was destined for hell, and that's why Jesus came. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Are you trusting in His grace? Are you treasuring this gospel? I'll tell you, it's worth selling out for 